I'm going to start this morning by saying that my intent is not to offend either architects or engineers, okay? Um, I'm going to be speaking in generalities, okay? Not specifics, based upon my limited personal experience. So, in 2003, my family and I moved into a rental home. And one of the things we had noticed when we first looked at this house is that there were some odd things about the design. One of those was that in the main living room, there was concrete seating, so like concrete benches around all three of the side walls, and then there was a fireplace on the other wall. Now that might sound interesting, but in practicality, it was extremely awkward because if you were going to use that seating, then some people would sit here and the people with whom you're trying to converse are four meters away or five, way far away. If you were going to enjoy the fireplace, you would sit four or five meters away from the fire. The only way to make it useful was to bring other furniture in and then you had kind of like two rows. It was more like a church service. It would have been perfect. I could have stood in front of the fireplace and preached to a congregation. It was very impractical. Another aspect of this house, another feature was curved doorways to get into the bedrooms. Now that might sound unique, but it's extremely difficult to get furniture through spaces that are curved and not square or rectangular. When I was meeting with the son of the owner of this house to negotiate, I asked him about these interesting features. And he kind of rolled his eyes before telling me that he was a civil engineer. And he said, when I was a child and my, my parents, my, my family was building this home, we had a family friend who was an architect. And my parents let her play around with our house. Now, since that experience, I've had the opportunity to talk to a number of different architects and engineers. And it seems, this, these are all my disclaimers, okay? It seems, it appears that at times, architects and engineers frustrate each other. Why? Generally, generally speaking, not specifically, it doesn't refer to anybody in this room and nobody listening over the internet either. Often, architects are primarily more concerned with appearance and uniqueness and beauty, while civil engineers, those who are responsible for the actual building process, are concerned more with the structure, with the efficiency and the functionality of the construction. In studying biblical psalms, did you notice that transition? Wasn't that, wasn't that smooth? from architects and engineers to psalms. In studying biblical psalms, we tend to approach them, I think, more as architects, meaning that we're looking for the beauty or the flow or the emotion that's conveyed through the psalm, which is valuable and valid. But in appreciating the beauty or focusing exclusively on the beauty, we might forget or ignore the structure. Biblical Psalms are Hebrew poetry. And Hebrew poets were skilled 
structuralists to the point that they often embed the meaning of the psalm in its structure. So they would structure these psalms intentionally in certain ways because the structure would carry the meaning or at the very least draw attention to the meaning. So we need to approach the Psalms as both architects and engineers because the deepest beauty is often revealed through the structure. And today we're going to look at a, a very well-known Psalm and we want to examine its structure because the structure of Psalm 100 is essential to understanding the meaning and the beauty of the Psalm of praise. Now, I memorized this Psalm as a child. My parents had me memorize it. I think we memorized it as a family. And I memorized it in the King James Version. Okay, so when I recite it today, I still revert to the King James Version. So I'm going to read it in the NIV so that we're all literally and figuratively on the same page. Psalm 100. Shout for joy to the Lord, all the earth. Worship the Lord with gladness. Come before him with joyful songs. Know that the Lord is God. It is he who made us and we are his. We are his people, the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and praise his name. For the Lord is good, and his love endures forever. His faithfulness continues through all generations. From just that one time through reading of this psalm, the overwhelming joy and praise that pours from its verses is evident. But what is the source? What, where does this joy come from? The psalmist reveals this through a structural device called a chiasm. So chiastic structure involves a pairing of concepts from the beginning and from the end and then moving down through subsequent pairings until it gets us right to the center. In this particular psalm, the chiasm is structured like this. You have an A and an A. So they are words, they can be phrases. In this particular psalm, they are verbs that will reflect each other. One from the beginning, one from the end. And then you move in to the next chiasm, the next um, pairing, the following pairing, and finally arrive at the center point. And that center point is where the psalmist wants to draw our attention and where he wants us to focus. And even the way it's laid out on the screen, you can see that it forms an arrow down to the sharpest point. So as we look at this psalm, what is the first pairing of verbs? The chiasmic structure, chiastic structure in this psalm is based upon the verbs. The first verb that we see in verse 1 is shout. Shout for joy to the Lord, all the earth. The final verb that refers to the people of God, to what we're being invited to do, is praise. Praise his name. 
Do you see how shout and praise as verbs that are enacted by the people of God reflect each other? The following pairing is worship and give. Now, you notice that I have another word in parentheses. Is there anyone else here that did memorize Psalm 100 or remembers Psalm 100 from the King James Version? Um, anyone? No? Or no one who's willing to say? All right. The NIV uses the word worship. Worship the Lord with gladness. The NIV is the only English translation that uses the word worship. Every other English translation uses what word? Serve. Serve the Lord with gladness. That is a better, more accurate translation. If we look at the Hebrew for that word, it refers to the act of slaves or servants. It is to serve. So we'll treat that word as serve. So once again, serve and give. Serve the Lord with gladness. Give thanks to him. Do you see how both serve and give as acts toward God reflect each other? And then the next pairing refers to access. Come and enter. Note the correspondence. It's becoming more intimate. The reader is invited to enter the presence of God, to come before him and to enter his gates. And that brings us to the final central verb on which the entire psalm rests. And that is the verb, know. It's at the middle. It forms the tip of the arrow. This is where David wants us to focus. What are we to know? Know that the Lord is God. We need to be careful about this verb to know as it's used both in Hebrew and in Greek because in English, generally speaking, we use the word know. It means something involving only our intellect. It's a fact or a proposition that we acknowledge intellectually. Biblically, it means much more. H.C. Leupold is a theologian and commentator, and this is what he writes about the verb to know in this context. It refers to a deeper knowledge which includes complete inner acceptance of the truth, which is acknowledged. Did we understand that? Did we hear that? It's not only intellectual, but in a complete inner acceptance of the truth, which is acknowledged. So again, we're confronted with the fact that knowing is more than just intellectual assent. To know that the Lord is God is to accept that proposition in our innermost hearts. To submit to the deity and the supremacy of God. And that submission, that knowing, is going to be revealed in the way we live. It's going to be shown in how we act, in the decisions we make, in the words we use, in short, how we treat others. Let me give you an example. 
I know I need to lose weight. Right there, you can deduce that I am using that I am using the word no only as an intellectual assent. Why? Because I have not shown any evidence that I know that. Uh, it hasn't apparently changed my actions or my choices. It hasn't transformed me. Maybe you've pe heard people say something else. I've heard people say, I know I need to stop smoking for my health, but they continue to smoke. There's no difference, right? I mean, so it's not just an intellectual assent to know as David uses it here to know is to be transformed and to accept, to surrender to, to submit to that knowledge. David writes this psalm in a Jewish context. The word, the name that God had given to himself, the closest we can get to pronouncing it is Yahweh. And when the English translation of the NIV writes the word Lord, all in capital letters, it is referring to the name that God has given himself, the name through which God has revealed himself to his people. So in this verse, when, when David writes, know that the Lord is God, he's not just being repetitive. He's saying, know that the deity, the being who has named himself to you as Yahweh, that he is God. He is the supreme being. So this knowing is a surrendering, a submitting, and a complete inner acceptance to the supremacy and deity of God Almighty. But there's more that David invites us to know. We accept that God is the supreme being. We acknowledge then that he created us and therefore we belong to him. Now I want to be cautious here because belonging to God is not for everyone. Everyone, every person, every human being has been created by God. But not every human being belongs to God in the sense that David is using here. Why is that? Because belonging to God as a son or daughter is dependent upon that first phrase of knowing, to know that the Lord is God. Those who have submitted to that lordship, to them through Christ, today have been given the right to be called children of God. So that's a very important distinction to understand. What follows is dependent upon that first phrase, know that the Lord is God. It is he who made us and we are his. That's an amazing statement that we belong to God. Every human being is created with a desire and a need to belong. A couple years ago, uh, my family and I were at the Popa Temple, one of my favorite places, <laughs> and um, we were getting uh, my, the Ehije, for both of my sons. And in the course of the conversation with the woman who was attending us, who was leading us through that process, 
the subject of adoption came up because of the makeup of our family. And um, all of a sudden, this adult woman burst into tears. And that's never happened to me before in the setting of, of, of a public servant of doing documentation in Brazil where, you know, our family brings somebody to tears. We've been brought to tears when we're trying to do documentation, but it's never been the other way around. And this, this woman, she starts crying. And I'm like, what is going on? And then she said something that just was heart-wrenching. She said, I grew up in an abrigo. That, that means I grew up in an orphanage. And she said, all my life, I've wanted to be adopted. And I've never been. And this is an adult. And it, rem it just shows that deep, visceral desire with which God created people to belong. And there are so many times in life, I think, for, for all of us, where we feel a sense of not belonging. Maybe because we don't think or see how we may be important to others or that we're not valued by others, that we, we don't have a place. But God affirms that our need for belonging is met in Him. Each child of God belongs to and with the Father. He has created that place and that relationship of belonging for each and every one of his children. Now, David writes another phrase. Not only did God create his people and they are his, but he says we are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Now, at first glance, that might sound like just a repetition, but it's not. It gives us a different context because it emphasizes the corporate picture of belonging. David was addressing the nation of Israel, God's chosen people, and he was speaking to them as a collective, a group, a people, a nation. They belong to God, but they are also collectively and communally his people. And to be the sheep of God's pasture is by definition to be a member of his flock. Right? Because shepherds did not have individual sheep pens for each one of their sheep. So if they had a flock of 200, they didn't have 200 individual pens that each sheep was in. No, the sheep were together in the sheepfold. They would go out with the shepherd each day to pasture. How? Together. To be a sheep of God's is to be part of his flock. You cannot be his sheep without being in his flock. In the context of this psalm, David was talking about the nation of Israel. In the context that we're reading today, the flock of God to which you belong, if you are a believer in Christ, is the church. So the people sitting around you are your brothers and sisters. They are your fellow sheep. Come on, that was a play on words. That was a good one. We have fellowship with fellow sheep. And so God not only says, you belong to me, but he says, you belong to my family. You belong to my body. You belong to each other. You are part of my community. 
a couple years ago, I was speaking to someone who had begun to attend Calvary and hadn't been here for too long, but a few months. And out of the blue, they made a comment that they had been invited to a party over the weekend, a party, someone's birthday within the church. I don't remember who it was. And the person paused and said to me, this is an adult, I have never been invited to a party before until I started being part of Calvary International Church. I was sad and grateful. Sad that this was the history that the person had, but grateful that God was providing a community for the person here. Thank you, Lord, for your body. Thank you for your church. Thank you for your community. Thank you for your family. And maybe in this context, maybe we need to repent of despising might be too strong a word, but ignoring, ignoring the spiritual family that God has given us. Ignoring the fact that we need to receive from God's family, but also perhaps ignoring the fact that we need to give and serve God's family as well. These are primal, basic truths of the life of people in God, that he is the one and only supreme being, that he is God, that he is our creator that we belong to him and that we belong to his family. And those are the central truths the psalmist sets right in the middle of Psalm 100. He draws our attention to them through this chiastic structure. And then, what happens? Think of this psalm as a big spring. And each of these pairings of verbs are coils of this spring. And so as we read the psalm, all these verbs are compressed together. Shout and praise, serve and give, come and enter, and finally, right at the center, to know. And there's tension on that spring as it's compressed. And then it explodes outward in joy and thankfulness. The first Part of the psalm focuses on joy. Shout for joy to the Lord all the earth. The second part, after the verb to know, focuses on thankfulness. Now, based upon that central verb, know, rests all the other verbs of this psalm. We're invited into the joyful, thankful praise to our God most high. Now, I don't have the time this morning to deal in depth with each of the other verbs, Whew, right? But in the context of praising our Lord, I want to share just a couple thoughts. Number one, shout for joy to the Lord all the earth. When was the last time you shouted with joy to the Lord? I'm not telling you to do it now, but I'm asking you. And I want to ask this, could it be that there is more room for exuberance in our worship than we normally expect or allow? Could it be? I don't think David is writing figuratively here. You know, that shouting would be just a symbol of joy. I think there's a literal aspect to it. Shout for joy to the Lord, all the earth. Make a joyful noise unto the Lord, all ye lands. You heard that? 
that verse from, from the Psalms, make a joyful noise to the Lord. When I think of a joyful noise, I don't think of I don't know if you've ever been so excited and overwhelmed by the supremacy of God and the blessing of belonging to him, being a sheep of his flock, that you can do nothing but shout his praise. The second verb, serve the Lord with gladness. Is your service to the Lord a joyful offering? I know for many of you it is because I see you serving the body of Christ here at Calvary with eagerness and faithfulness. I see that. And I hear your desire to multiply and disciple, equip and send, and to contribute to those efforts with gladness. I have people coming to me often saying, how can I serve the church? How can I serve the Lord here at Calvary? And there's joy and gladness in those requests. But I also know the reality is that for some of us at times, service to the Lord for some reason has become drudgery or a burden and if that's the case, I don't want to say to you this morning, change it, be happy, serve the Lord with gladness. What I would suggest is go back to the center of this psalm and meditate upon the blessing of knowing that the Lord is God, that he is sovereign and supreme, and that he has chosen you through no merit of your own to be a sheep of his flock, to belong to him and to be part of his family. It's a blessing that we are not expected to praise and thank a faceless, nameless unknown. So we're not talking about a, a tyrannical dictator who is requiring us to spout these words of praise and thankfulness we are invited to joyfully thank and praise the God of the universe who has approached us, who has revealed himself to us, who has shown us that he is loving, that he is kind, that he is good, that he is just, that he is concerned for the well-being and eternal well-being of his people. He shows himself first and then he invites the joy and the thankfulness. Come and enter. Come before him with joyful songs. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Come before him with joyful songs. How often, this, this may, I, I don't know the answer to this question. I'm asking you so you'll reflect. How often do you come into the presence of the Lord simply to share your joy with him. How often? I think our human tendency is to approach the presence of God when things are going badly, when they're suffering, when we need help. And sometimes the joy and the thankfulness are lacking. That we forget to share our joy and our thankfulness with, with the Lord. So I, let, let's make a point, an intentional point of sharing our joy with the Lord as well and not only our sorrows. 
David writes, enter his gates with thanksgiving. What does he mean by that? Why does he write that? Consider this. If we have a realistic understanding that when we approach God, we are truly coming into the presence of the supreme sovereign of the universe, then simply the fact that we are able and invited to approach, to come in, should well up thankfulness in us. I don't want to minimize the presence of God. That's not my intent in sharing this next illustration. But um, in 1994, during the, the World Cup, which Brazil won in a penalty shootout over Italy, it's important, I was living in Chicago at the time, and I was able to get tickets to a World Cup game at Soldier Field in downtown Chicago. And I was so excited about that. It was Germany and Spain um, at the World Cup. Two World Cup powers were playing, and I got to go. And I remember walking into the stadium, and uh, pretty high up in the stadium. I wasn't down close to the action. So I walked in, and, and the whole field you know, opens up in front of me and the teams are starting to warm up and there's the, the, just a really fun atmosphere, international atmosphere there. And I was just so grateful to be there. At that point, I was so excited. I didn't care if the game was going to be great or bad. It was kind of meh, but um, one-to-one. But the joy of just being there Again, I don't want to minimize or trivialize being in the presence of God by using that illustration. But when we come into the presence of the Almighty King, simply the fact that we are there, simply the fact that we are entering His gates and coming into His courts is a motive, is a reason for gratefulness. And in the last two verbs, be thankful and praise God. Give thanks and praise His name. Simple. Simple and yet profound invitations for His church. David ends the psalm by affirming the goodness of God. And I touched on this earlier that we, have not, we are not being coerced to worship, to be joyful, to be thankful to a tyrannical dictator we are invited to reflect joy and thankfulness and praise back to this God. For the Lord is good and his love endures forever. His faithfulness continues through all generations. May this year, of which we're just on the verge, 2020, may it be a year of gratefulness and joy. Joy and gratefulness that we choose. Because, why? Because we know we have submitted to God as the supreme authority and king of our lives. Because we are convinced not only that he created us, but that we are his, that we belong to him, and that we belong to his family. This morning we celebrate communion, which is one of those acts which is solemn, 
but it is also joyful. Because we remember the death of Jesus and we cannot remember his death without celebrating his resurrection. And by his completed work, death and resurrection, that is how he has opened for you and for me, for all of us, that path to be reconciled to God the Father, to know him, to be known by him, to have our sins forgiven, to belong to the family of God, to be regenerated and renewed by his sovereign work. And that's what we celebrate in joy this morning. So I would invite those who will be serving the elements to go ahead and come forward now as we prepare the table. And I offer you a brief minute or two to meditate on that central part of that psalm, to know that the Lord is God. He has made us and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture.